You know, I, I just love that. Who had a good time in worship? Was that a good worship? Yeah, that was great. That was great. You know, I, 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 there's two things about me, you know, that are very natural. One is I'm Swedish, which means we don't express emotion very easily. And the, hey, yeah. And the other is my knees aren't great. So if you see me crying, it's because the Spirit of God is, is at work and God's kind of tugging my heart. And if you see me on my knees, you know that it's the Spirit of God is... Because God is the only one who can make me do those two things naturally. And my Swedishness with my knees, I don't do those things. So that's a, that's a God thing. So. <laughs> I love you, Chris. Man, I wish, I want to just, you know what I want? I want a pocket-sized Chris. I could just take everywhere with me. <laughs> I love that. Man. Oh, I just, I, it's good to see you. I heard last week that you weren't feeling well with your headache. And that, can, we just, can we pray for Chris right now? Is that all right? Would you just stretch your hand this way? Let's pray for Chris. Lord, I lift up Chris to you. Lord, I lift her up to you. I lift up her body to you. You made this body. God, you know it inside and out. And you are our great physician. We pray in the name of Jesus that you would bring healing right now to Chris's mind and body. Lord, we thank you for the blessing that she is. Encourage her, God, and build her up. Because she is a sister in Christ and such a blessing. In the name of Jesus, everybody said, amen. Amen. Thank you. I love seeing you. All right. Let's, let's uh, get into this today. I, I want to talk today about temptation. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. This last week, uh, this last Wednesday was Ash Wednesday. If you came to the service, uh, we had a great service downstairs. And it was the beginning of Lent. Lent is a period of 40 days, uh, excluding Sundays, between Ash Wednesday and Easter Sunday, when we celebrate Jesus' resurrection. And we use this opportunity, we use this season to focus in on the cross, to focus in on the resurrection. Uh, I think that the cross and the empty grave are the most uh, foundational, most cataclysmic, the greatest events, not just in our faith, but in creation. They are the greatest things to have happened to us. Uh, and so we look forward to that day. We, uh, it's on our minds, it's in our sights, and Lent is sort of our period of sort of focusing in on that, on that moment. So that's what we're in right now. And a lot of people give up something for Lent. Uh, I want to encourage you, this Lent, if you have not decided, I'm going to give up something, I'm going to fast something, would you do something? Would you take on something instead? Instead of giving up something, take on something. We have in the back, we have little uh, bookmarks, and we have papers, and then there's also in the back, in the rack, a uh, daily devotional. Would you take on Bible reading this Lent? Would you commit yourself 40 days? It's already, you're already three days into it, so it's, it's 37 days, really, of, of reading Scripture with us. Uh, in this one, this is one that we've had for a long time, uh, and you can read through this. Uh, in this bookmark, uh, we just put this together, and it's a daily Bible reading program. You go through the Bible in a year, you go through Psalms several times, and you go through Proverbs several times. Every day you get a little Old Testament, a little New Testament, a Psalm, and a Proverb. So uh, pick one of these things up. Pick up a daily bread that's in the back. That's another daily reading thing. Or pick up one of these. And this Lenten season, take the time to spend time with God in the Word. Take the time to read Scripture every day. Let's try and do that together. Let's do that, all of us. Uh, Spending some time every day with the Lord, even if it's a small amount, even if it's just a psalm, 
read a little bit of scripture every day. We can do that. We can do that for Lent to prepare us for Easter. And so these 40 days that we have are days of fasting. They're days of taking on things. And they mirror, they're supposed to sort of emulate, mirror uh, Jesus's 40 days of fasting. Jesus spent 40 days fasting in the wilderness. And we're going to be reading about that today out of Matthew 4. That's going to be our text. And that's what I'm going to be preaching on. But before I get to that specific story, I want to spend just a, a few minutes on what happened immediately prior to Jesus' fasting in the wilderness. This is Matthew three, sixteen through the first verse of chapter 4. Jesus has gone down to the Jordan River, and he's going to be baptized by a man named John. And it says that as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him, landing on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. There's a direct link between Jesus' baptism, between the words of affirmation from the Father and the desert experience that Jesus enters into. There's a direct link between those two things. Jesus' first public move, right, as somebody who's now beginning a life of ministry, wasn't a rock concert, right? He didn't announce his candidacy for Messiah with a big party, inviting all the paparazzi and big donors out. He didn't do any of those things. Instead, the Savior of the world, God himself in human form, starts his ministry by going and getting baptized in the Jordan River. In a world today that is obsessed with bigger-than-life personas and grandiose displays, it's, it is important that we remember the first moment that our Messiah, the Savior, God himself took was to go into a cold river and be baptized by a crazy guy in camel fur. Right? Not what you would think of would be Uh, the big, momentous event. And when he came out of the water, the crowds didn't erupt with cheering, right? There's no, the Pharisees didn't lift him up on their shoulders and, you know, bring him into Jerusalem on a parade. Humanity was totally silent. People were quiet. Nobody said anything. And then God spoke. And the words of the Father brought affirmation to Jesus. This is my son, whom I love, and I'm so proud of him. I'm so pleased with him. This is my son. Once you've heard the voice of God, once you have had the chance to meet Jesus, the rest doesn't matter. All the rest of the world doesn't matter once you've met Jesus. And I, I think that's, that's so uh, forgotten sometimes, right? We put so much emphasis, even in the church, on the way that we dress things up or the way that things are presented. But guys, I, man, once you meet Jesus, I, I, it doesn't matter. None of that matters anymore. This is my son whom I love, and with him I'm well pleased. I'm, I'm proud of him. Those words, that affirmation from the Father that Jesus receives, that is what sustains Jesus in this time of wilderness, the time of desert fasting. 
He feasts on those words. He's thinking about them. He's taking them in and digesting them. That one affirmation from his father is what sustains his time of fasting in the wilderness, in the desert. After this experience of baptism, it says that the, the Spirit leads him into the desert. The word there really means like he, he pulls him out into the desert. He, he lifts him up in the desert. He brings him up into the desert. The Spirit of God compels him into the desert. God is not interested in lip service. God wants to know, are your words of faith going to be matched by actions? Are you going to put your body where your mouth is? And Jesus has now 40 days in the desert to think about the affirmation of his father. And in the desert, he encounters temptation. In recovery classes, we used to tell people, if you decide to give up drugs tonight, you are guaranteed that someone this week will offer you free drugs. If you give up drugs right now, you decide that, it's coming. This week, someone will offer you free drugs. God is interested to see, are you going to put your body where your mouth is? It doesn't do any good to give God lip service. So Jesus is in the desert. He enters the desert. And now we're gonna, I'm going to go ahead and walk through this time that he's in the desert. I'm gonna, we're going to use the Stephen Revised Version, so you're just going to have to follow along with me. It says, after fasting for 40 days and nights, Jesus was hungry. That makes a lot of sense to me. I would be hungry too. Melody's with me. <laughs> I like to eat. And it says that the devil came to Jesus. right? And he, he points to Jesus. He says, hey, you know, look around you, man. There's all these rocks here. If you wanted to, you know, you're the son of God. If you wanted to, you could just, you could turn some of these rocks into bread. You know, you've done the 40 days and 40 nights. You got nothing more to prove to anybody. Like, Eat, take care of yourself, man. Sit down. You've done a good job. Turn a few of these rocks into bread and satisfy yourself. It's interesting uh, that later in his ministry, when Jesus multiplies the fish and the bread, do you remember those uh, miracles? When he multiplies the fish and the bread, it's interesting because Scripture never says that Jesus ate at that time. It's inferred that the disciples eat. Afterwards, they're picking up basketfuls of uh, food. It's inferred that they eat. But it doesn't say that Jesus ever eats what he multiplies. He never eats the fruit of his multiplication. Everywhere I go, I see people who are using the talents and skills and abilities that God has given them to benefit themselves and not other people. All the time I see people who are talented musicians or athletes or people who can use their words and persuade people. And what are they interested in? They're interested in building themselves up. They're not interested in helping other people with what God has given them. Why? Because once we separate ourselves from the source of life, everything we have, we have to hoard for ourselves. Once we separate ourselves from God, who is the one who sustains us, we start to turn inward. We start to think, my money, I have to use it for myself. I have to look out for myself. I have to take care of myself and my own. My talents and my abilities, I'm going to enjoy these myself. God never, ever gives a spiritual gift or a talent or a blessing or an ability without the intent that that thing is going to be turned around and used to bless other people. 
If you read in the New Testament, you read all through Paul's letters when he talks about spiritual gifts, things like prophecy, things like healing, things like speaking in tongues, things like miraculous events happening in nature, it never, ever, ever occurs unless it's to the benefit of other people, unless it's to build up the body of believers, unless it's to help the church or help your neighbors. God never gives you a talent or ability simply for your own consumption. And Jesus recognizes this. Jesus recognizes that the, the blessing that he has as Messiah, that the ability he has as God, is not meant simply for his own satisfaction. Man, he could have sat down and made himself a 10-course meal, stuff that people in that era and that time period had never even seen before. Right? He could have made Doritos chips appear out of the rocks. But to do so would be to satisfy himself with the things that God has given him. And instead, Jesus turns to the devil and he says, don't you know that the scriptures say man is not supposed to live on bread alone, but on every word that issues forth from the Father. I'm not here to please myself. I'm here to please my Father. My mind is focused on him. I'm not thinking about myself here. Jesus knew who he was. This is my son. He knew who he was. When God tells you who you are, when you start to receive your identity from God, and not from the things that you do or the things you produce. It frees you. It frees you from the temptation to be selfish, from the temptation to make it all about you. Because all of a sudden, my identity doesn't, isn't produced by my skills and abilities. My identity is given by God, and it frees me to live selflessly, to live for other people, to live so that my life would be a reflection of God. Thank you. I agree. After this, the devil takes Jesus up to a, the top of the temple in Jerusalem. It's 150 feet up. How tall is it? Stan, how tall is this building? All together? 40, 40 feet. All right, so that's like what? That's like four, four and a half, five of these buildings stacked on one, on one another. All the way up. It's a tall building. It's not a small jump. It's a 15-story building that Jesus is on top of. And Satan's up there with him, and he says... He says, hey, look, Jesus, here's an idea. You're the son of God. Throw yourself off of here. You know that God's going to protect you. It says in his word he's going to protect you. He's going to protect you. Throw yourself off of here. Can you imagine what sort of an entrance that would be? You're just starting off in your ministry, man. This is the way to do it. You jump off the top of the temple, land in the middle of the temple courtyard. All the priests are there. All the Pharisees are there. All, all the religious leaders are there. Mad, their minds are going to be blown, man. They're going to love this. This is going to really fast track your whole Messiah thing. You should do this. And the truth was, the truth was that the devil was probably right in that if Jesus threw himself off the top of the temple, God was probably going to protect him. Jesus had a mission to do. I don't think the Father was going to allow anything to happen to Jesus until that mission was complete. So technically, the, the, the devil might have been actually correct in that. In reality, if Jesus had done this, the path forward for him would have been easier. His greatest adversaries that we see in the New Testament, the Sadducees, the priests, the scholars, the scribes, the Pharisees, imagine the reaction if somebody came literally from heaven in the middle of the temple and landed in the courtyard. How would that have played out differently? What would it have been like? All he had to do was to blaze his own path. All he had to do was to decide to take his fate in his own hands. 
Take his destiny. Grab a hold of it. Friends, I must admit that I struggle with this temptation. It's a temptation that says, God's moving too slowly. You need to get out there and do something. You need to grab life by the horns. God's doing his thing and it's great and it'll work out, I'm sure. But you, you got to take the initiative. Right? Ultimately, it's the voice that says, God is not trustworthy with the vision or the call that he's given you. God is not trustworthy. And it's time for you to step up and start taking dominion over your own life. Within the temptation of pornography is a false promise. I will satisfy you. I will bring you pleasure at no cost. You aren't getting what you deserve. Within intoxication is a false promise. I will set you free from worry. I will ease your pain. I will bring you happiness. Within deception and lying is a false promise. I will protect you. I will make a way for you. I will bring you security. Within violence is a false promise. You need to stand up for yourself. I will defend your livelihood. I will give you control over your circumstances. As Jesus was standing on the temple, I wonder what he was thinking about. But I know, I'm I'm sure that the words of the Father came back to him. This is my son whom I love. This is my son whom I love. And Jesus answers the devil. He says, Scripture says, don't test the Lord your God. I don't need to test God. I trust God. I don't need to test God. I trust him. That's what we need in our own lives. That's what we need. When we get to those places where we feel like, if I don't take the initiative, if I don't go forward, if I don't take control, if I don't take this in my life, God, can I trust that God is going to see me through? Can I trust that God is going to, going to bring me to a place where I need to be? And Jesus says, I don't need to test God. I trust him. We need that, brothers and sisters, in our own lives. We need that. When you begin to grasp the enormity of God's love for you, you can resist the temptation to be the master of your own life because you can start living in trust and security that God is watching over you. So, Jesus says no a second time, and the devil probably has figured he's got one more shot at this, right? Pull out all the stops. So he takes Jesus on the top of a mountain, and he lays out all of the nations, all of the empires of the world in front of him. And he says to Jesus, he says, look, I know why you're here. I know what you're about. I know what you're doing. You're interested in in this. You're interested in the people. All right. Well, I'll give you the people. I'll give them to you right now. And it's not going to cost your life. It's not going to cost torture. It's not going to cost any of those things. I'll give you the whole world right now, Jesus. All you got to do is worship me. That's all you got to do. Bow down and worship me, and I'll give you everything that you want. I'll give it to you. Friends, when the tempter comes once, he comes to lay a seed in your life. When he comes a second and a third time, he comes to watch that seed growing. He wants to see, are they going to respond to me? And I want to tell you something. If you give in to the tempter once, the next time around, he's got an open door to come in and say, hey, you know, we, 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 took, care, we took care of you last time. Maybe this time, maybe a little bit farther. 
And then he comes a second and a third time. And by the sixth and seventh time that he comes knocking at your door, you realize that you're starting to do things you never imagined you would do. And all of a sudden, that small little seed that was planted before that you thought was so innocent and so small has grown into something. And all of a sudden, the devil reaps a harvest of death and destruction because that is ultimately why he's here. The enemy has come to steal your joy. He's come to kill your spirit. He's come to destroy your soul. That's what the enemy is about. And if we start to give him little ground in little areas of our lives, all of a sudden we find ourselves worshiping something that we despise because we're not able to say no to that which we could have said no to before. That's what he's after. Don't give in to him once. Don't give in to him twice, brothers and sisters. Because when he comes lastly, he's going to take your worship. Jesus' mission His purpose in coming was to rescue us, was to save us, was to grasp us away, to lay claim to our lives. And here was an opportunity to do it. Here was an opportunity to have it all and not have to endure the cross. And I wonder if later in Gethsemane, when Jesus is literally crying droplets of blood because he's so distraught over his situation, as Jesus is facing the cross, as he's facing torture and death, not to mention the weight of our sin laid on him. I wonder if his mind's ever returned to this moment. I wonder if he ever thought about this moment when he could have taken it all without enduring the pain and the suffering. I wonder if he thought about that. But Jesus refused to be won over. Here the God-man shows his greatest strength, his greatest moment, when without any prospect of glory, in fact, When he's faced with failure, he knows the cross is ahead of him. He understands that route. He chooses death. He chooses destruction. He chooses perceived failure in the eyes of the people that he cares about the most. So that he can continue to worship and serve only God. For 40 years, Israel wandered the desert and died. Why? Because they acted selfishly because they refused to trust God and because they worshiped other idols. And in 40 days, Jesus goes through the same trials, goes through the same troubles, and comes out on a different end. He succeeds where we fail. Jesus has resisted temptation where we have given in. He has the ability. He has already done it. Scripture says there is no temptation which is common to man, which God has not already endured through Jesus. He has carried and encountered all those things. And he did it, he succeeded, because he had heard and received the affirmation of the Father, this is my son, whom I love. And I'm so proud of him. I'm well pleased in this man. And then it says in the story that the devil left him. God has words to speak over you today, church. He has words for you, for your life, for your family. Words that are beyond my words, words that I cannot communicate to you. He has words for your life. I'm interested in you going face to face with Jesus today. I'm interested in you encountering and experiencing God today. My own words, my own ability is is negligent, not helpful. Only the words of God, the affirmation of the Father, 
as he speaks over your life, is going to be able to sustain and give the endurance that you need. We often think about Peter, uh, the apostle Peter, his admonition in, in 1 Peter, at the end of 1 Peter, he says this, he says, resist the devil, right? But do you remember how he introduces that quote? He says this, this is 1 Peter 5, 6 through 7, he says, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all of your anxiety upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. Because he cares for you. There's people here today, there's somebody here today who need to start casting their anxiety on God because he cares for you. And you've been trying to encounter the tempter in your own strength. You've been trying to come up with the only reasons that you have to resist temptation, to stave it off. And they're insufficient. Yes, they are insufficient. You need the word of the Father. You need to hear the words of your Father in heaven speaking over your life to give you the strength and the courage and the endurance that you need in your life to deal with your family, to deal with your job, to deal with your your children, to deal with your schooling. You need the words and affirmations of the Father. And I want to leave you with one more thought before we have just a time of prayer and then also a time of communion. Um, and that is what I, something I'd like to call the double victory of Satan. A young life, who uh, they're a group here in town that minister to young, young people, youth, and a great group. Um, they recently had a panel on sex, which was well attended, as you can imagine, uh, for these high schoolers. And they had high schoolers submit anonymous questions for the panel to answer. And one of the questions was, can I take it all back? Can I take it back? Only Jesus was perfect. All of us stumble. That's the first victory of the enemy, is when he causes us to stumble. But that's not his greatest victory. Satan does not rejoice when we stumble, folks. The greatest victory he has is in convincing us after we've stumbled that there's no hope, that there's no grace, that there's no love sufficient for us anymore. The greatest victory that the enemy can have is not to keep you from doing good. It's to keep you from the cross. The reality is every single one of us is tainted by sin. And there's a, there's a deep theological truth that you need to grasp and hold on to in your life. And that is this. Sin will not keep you from your salvation I'll say it again. Sin will not keep you from your salvation. What will keep you from salvation is an inability to go to the cross. It's an inability to come back to the cross. The width, the depth, the breadth, the height of God's love is far greater, far more enormous than anything we could ever do, than any wrong we could ever commit. Can I take it all back? No, you can't take it back. But in God, there is grace that is sufficient for you. At the foot of the cross, there's mercy for that sin. There's strength and endurance there. There's words of affirmations at the foot of the cross. There's something there that's going to sustain you. 
I, I can't, I don't have anything for you. You can't do it of your own. Brothers and sisters, I feel like so many times even Christians forget the gospel. And we start to make it about what we do and who we are and how we perform. We need to be reminded again and again and again that it's at the foot of the cross that there is a balm for the healing of nations. At the foot of the cross, there is something to wash you as white as snow. At the foot of the cross, there's hope for tomorrow. At the foot of the cross, there's companionship with God. That's where we need to be. That's where the grace of God is extended onto our lives. There is no, I've gone too far. There is no, I'm beyond. There's only grace. There's only grace. Someone today might be struggling. Maybe you've given the enemy the first victory in your life. Brothers, sisters, do not let him have the second victory. Don't let him have the second victory. Jesus has overcome every temptation so that you can find forgiveness today. It doesn't matter what you've done. Jesus eats with everyone. And so we're going to move to a time of communion. And Would you mind yeah, getting the kids from downstairs? We like to have our kids up here to take communion with us. Um, some places, some churches, uh, you know, they, they have different ways of doing communion. This is how we do it here. If you need Jesus this morning, then the communion table is open to you. If you, don't need, if you feel like you don't have a need for Jesus, then please stay where you are. This table is meant for people who need Jesus. People who need to return to the foot of the cross. People who need to come back again and say, Lord, I need your grace. I need your mercy. I need your forgiveness in my life. That's what this is for. And so when the kids come up, we're going to pray over this and, and, uh, and then we'll take it together. There's a story that in the, uh, during the Civil War, uh, it was illegal, of course, in the North to purchase uh, agricultural goods that were made in the South. Um, so people made a lot of money. Smugglers made a lot of money getting cotton from the South and and taking it across the river and selling it in the north for this huge profit. You make a lot of money that way. And there's a story of one smuggler uh, who came to a Mississippi um, steamboat, steamboat captain uh, to get him, and he tried to convince him to run, run his cotton up the river for him. And uh, the captain, you know, said, no, I'm not going to do that. And the guy said, well, how about if I give you 500, I'll give you $500. $500 is quite a bit of money in 1860s. And the steam steamboat captain, he said, no, I'm not going to do it, and uh, reminds the man, this is illegal, you know, what you're doing. The man said, all right, well, I'll give you $1,000, and the man said, no, no, I'm not going to do it. $3,000, I'll give you. At that point, the steamboat captain pulled out a gun, and he said, brother, you're getting way too close to my price. You get off my boat now. <laughs> <laughs> Come on up, kids. <laughs> some, of us need, some of us need to treat temptation like that. Because if you entertain that dialogue, come on up, guys. If you entertain that dialogue, eventually the devil's going to hit a price that you can pay. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. So we're going to do communion together. Go ahead, you can play. Let me explain to you guys what this is all about. <clears throat> okay. So Jesus... 
he was with his friends, and they were all having food together. They're eating some food, having dinner. And it says that he, he was sitting there, and he took some bread, just kind of like this, and he, just like this, and he tore it in half. Do you want to help me tear it in half? Tear it. You, yeah, you grab that. There you go. You can tear that one up. He tore it in half. And he said, this is kind of like my body. When my body is broken like this, it's because I'm doing it because I love you. It's because I, I, don't, I want you to be forgiven for all your sins. And after he was done with that, he took some juice or some wine. And he said, this, this right here is, is kind of like my blood. This is for your forgiveness of sins. He said, I, I want to pour this out. I'm going to pour out my blood to forgive your sins. That's how much you mean to me. And he, then he said, every time that you eat bread, every time that you drink wine, every time we do this together, we do this communion thing together, remember me. Remember what I've done for you. So we're going to pray. Is that all right? And after we get done praying, we're going to invite you to come up. The way we do this is uh, you're invited to come Take some juice, take some bread. We have little containers up here of gluten-free stuff if you need that. And go back to your seats and take communion with somebody around you. Don't take it by yourself. Take it with somebody around you and just enjoy it together. Would you guys help me pray? Okay, this is, can you just put your hands on the table because we're going to pray for this stuff. Come on over, there we go. Let's pray. Lord, we know that we need your love. We know that we need your forgiveness. Sometimes we forget. But today we know. And today we remember that you died for us. That your blood was shed for us. That you were broken so that we could live. Thank you, Jesus, for the life that you've given us. We receive it today. In your name, Lord. Can you say amen with me? Amen. Good job. Okay. You guys can go sit down if you'd like. You can take some of this. You can take some juice and you can take some bread and go sit down.